Welcome back to the Paperless Fair List. I'm Justin. I'm Carrie. Hey, Carrie. Um, okay, we're back here with episode nine on Federalist Paper number nine. And again, it's the Union as a safeguard against domestic faction and insurrection for the Independent Journal by Alexander Hamilton to the people of the state of New York. And I think uh, Carrie, as is our normal tradition, one of us takes the takes the reins and does a five minute breakdown, more or less. Uh, I know you had a few of these in a row, but if you don't mind doing one more, uh, then I swear I will I will chime in at some point in the near future. <laughs> Understandable. This is my third one, so you're lucky we don't have a three strikes policy or law going on here. Otherwise, that might trigger something. But uh, yeah, I'd be more than happy to summarize again. We're talking today about paper number nine. In this one, uh, Hamilton really breaks down the topic of would the United States as a combined form of Confederate government be too big to function? And one of the things I, I'm hoping you'll be able to address for me before we're done here today, Justin, is tell me exactly what the heck you think uh, that Hamilton means when he refers to stupendous fabrics of liberty. I enjoyed his use of that term, even though it would boggle my mind. But to get into the summary, he starts out by saying, look, union Union of States is really the best cure for factionalism and rebellion in the different uh, states. And as the Federalists often do, he starts by addressing the glories and the history of Greece and Rome. As we discussed before, the Federalists and the Henry Federalists consider themselves to be Renaissance individuals schooled in ancient history and the lessons of the ancients. So everybody always had to start by talking about what, what the history of Greece and Rome had to say about what they were trying to do. And so he says, hey, the glory of Greece and Rome was always undercut by divisions, and it swung between chaos and extreme governmental power that was needed to reign in the chaos. You know, the, the people would get out of control and go off, uh, go off the rails, and then the government would need to put extreme power in the hands of a dictator or an aristocracy or an oligarchy to bring them into line. It would go back and forth between the two, and it would undermine the order of the government that would make it hard for them to accomplish anything lasting because they were always going back and forth between the extremes. And this apparently has been used pre-United States by uh, pro-monarchist philosophers or theorists on the subject of government to say that, look, if you look at the history of Greece and the history of Rome, it proves that you've got to give the power in a society to a, a king or a monarch or, at the very most, a very small group of qualified individuals with, with you know, a lot of power because if uh, you give it to everybody, there's just going to be chaos. Um, and in this part, uh, uh, Hamilton responds by saying that there's other parts of history that show that this is not right. And he refers to them as stupendous fabrics of liberty. And we'll return to that later. Hmm. But... Hamilton goes on to say, look, if we now haven't learned anything to make our governments any better than that of Greece and Rome, then yeah, maybe the monarchists have a point. But just like all other sciences have advanced, so has the science of, science of government. And he talks about several advancements that he believes uh, were ones that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans did not have, but that the people of his time, uh, of the Renaissance and afterwards, uh, have access to. And that he says, specifically those four are the ability to divide power into departments and bureaucracies, uh, checks and balances on the exercise of power, uh, the ability of judges and courts to curb excesses, 
and in the direct election of representatives to represent the people instead of the people themselves in a direct democracy fashion voting on everything. Uh, and he says, look, this is how you keep the advantages of a democratic government while reigning in its problem areas. And he says that the final perfection of democracy is really the confederation. It's uh, bringing the state into the orbit of a central restraining government, just like the planets orbit the sun or uh, a star. Uh, then he just suddenly switches gears to talk about a political philosopher who was discussed a lot by both the Federalists and the Anarchists, uh, named Montesquieu. He's a French philosopher who, um, just as a contextual note, the Anarchists had been talking a lot about Montesquieu and Montesquieu, a, th a theory of Montesquieu's that if a democracy or a republic gets too large, um, it can't really govern effectively. And so, and we can discuss that in more depth later, but basically, Hamilton feels the need to respond to that. He basically says, look, you know, this would not be too big of a government if all the states joined together. Um, and he says, I understand that the anti-federalists are emphasizing Montesquieu's point that you don't want a, a government to be bigger than a certain size. But there's two things they're missing. One, there were some important arguments he made that Montesquieu made about how do you can mitigate those problems of having a country that's too large and also democratic. And two, they haven't really thought about what their argument means about how this, how big the states already are. Uh, so addressing the second point first, because it's the easier of the two to address, uh, he, just, he just lays out there, look, about half the states that already exist, six of them, are already larger than what Montesquieu thought was the maximum size of a democratic government. I mean, it seems to me that, Mo that the implication is that any state that's any larger or more powerful than, for example, a country the size of the Netherlands would be hard to govern effectively in a democratic fashion. And there are a number of states that are obviously larger than that, even in colonial America, you know, among those, New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, etc. Uh, he says, look, if you're arguing that you have to take Montesquieu literally, and anything's bigger than, you know, this country the size of the Netherlands or something is is too big to be a democracy. Then you we've got to split up those six states that are already bigger than that. And he says that obviously that's ridiculous. I mean, he sort of does a great straw man argument there. They're arguing we have to split up the states. That's stupid. So all their other points are wrong too. <laughs> um, he says it'd be ridiculous to break up the states into smaller entities, because then you're just going to have a bunch of petty little uh, tiny governments that are going to be, again, revisiting a prior uh, paper of his. All those tiny little states are going to be governed by unqualified, the kind of unqualified individuals that you get at the local level. level. And he says, such men, you're only going to be good enough to, to do things that are going to benefit themselves, but they're not the type of people who are going to make this country great again. Uh, he says, even if it was a good idea to reduce the size of larger states, it doesn't mean that a um, confederate federal government uh, could govern them all effectively uh, because it's not the size of the states that matter, according to Hamilton. He says, look, what really matters is the those four points he made earlier about the four institutional changes the government can make to uh, rein in the excesses of democracy – 
those are the things he says the modest you laid out to have the advantages of a monarchy as far as the ability to act quickly and act decisively, but also rein in uh, the, the monarchy and have the people be ultimately in control of their government. And then he says that you know you, you need this strength of united of the united of the states united together to allow the the country to stand up from outside threats, but it, he says, look, I know if, if you're worried that one state is going to take control of everything, you know, no state under this system is going to be big enough or powerful enough to force itself on all the other states. The more it tries, the more it, others are going to oppose it and stop it from becoming, you know, the all-pervasive power over the government. And then, uh, and I, what I thought he was, was an interesting point, he says, if one state rebels, the other states can crush the rebellion in it, in that one area. If one state is corrupted, the other states can try to reform it so that if there is a almost like a disease as far as infecting one part of the country, it's not going to affect the others. The others will be able to go and heal it. But almost right after that, he says, if worse comes to worst and the country is just going to hell in a handbasket, then your states can leave, which I thought was sort of incongruous because on one hand, he says, the other states are going to go and suppress the rebellions in an individual state. But on the other hand, you can leave if you want to. One of those things doesn't seem to work with the other. But anyways, then he comes back and again stresses that union is the best cure for factionalism and rebellion. And he says, look, um, there are a lot of, you know, this, the terms Confederacy and Confederate Republic are only very general terms. And there's a lot of ways we can, we can do it correctly. We're not tied into the ways that the, the ancient uh, democracies did it. Uh, and then he talks about how uh, this form, re Republican history, the Lycian Confederacy, was spoken very high of, highly of by Montesquieu. And these Lycians basically gave more power to larger cities than to smaller cities. And that was one of the ways they dealt with Federalism, for lack of a better word, and he said that these Lycians also, their republic was much more invasive into the affairs of the individual cities. You know, they would they would actually appoint city officials and whatnot than the republic under the U.S. Constitution ever would be. And he said if Montesquieu spoke so highly of the Lycian Confederacy, then obviously he would also be fine with the the. Confederacy formed by the uh, states under the United States Constitution. And that's the general outline. It's just basically a way of saying you can have your cake and you can eat it too. You have all of the good parts of being a democracy and the you know, ability to defend yourselves and be strong in the international arena. But at the same time, you can have all the liberty and local control you would ever want. Um, in under the Constitution to control your affairs, and that's it. So, did you see that language about the stupendous fabrics of liberty? What do you think? What do you think about that? It was such an unusual term. I want people to know that I'm not just making it up. Yeah, where's says, where's that in the? It is. It is. I, I'm not sure. Depending on how small your type is and what your which your, it's in that first page or second for you. That says happily for mankind, stupendous fabric. Stupendous fabrics reared on the basis of liberty, which have flourished for the ages, have, in a few glorious instances, 
refuted their gloomy sophisms. So I, I just thought that was an interesting uh, metaphor there. Stupendous fabrics of liberty. And I know I'm omitting some words, but that's his, that's his noun he's searching for, the stupendous fabrics of liberty. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think it went beyond me because uh, I, I live more in the business casual khakis of bureaucracy than the stupendous, stupendous fabrics of liberty. Yeah, there's nothing stupendous uh, about where... Uh about the spheres of government that I'm in. <laughs> so um, I do see well, Do you now. have a different yeah. take on number nine? No. Um, you know, I think you pretty much nailed it. I think you gave a really good summary, as always, Kerry. He brushes by the Greeks and Romans right at the beginning. But I almost feel like he did that out of, like, a tip of a hat and, and not uh, – He always has to check that box. Yeah. Both the Federals and the Interfederals always have to check that box. Yeah. The, hey, well, we gotta make sure we talk about Greeks and Rome at least one a little bit. Yeah, discuss anything to demonstrate that I know history. I'm gonna mention. I'm gonna throw out Greeks and Rome here, and then we're gonna talk about other stuff that I'm gonna talk about. That's what I feel like he's doing. Yeah, you know, it is. You say it's sort of a tip of the hat. <laughs> you know, what I thought was interesting though is he after he gets past the Greeks and the Rome Romans right off the bat, he he almost uses them really just to kind of set up the point that he wants to make, which is that hey, look, the signs of politics like any other science, has received great improvement over the years. And that's where he, he almost really... wants to say we're better than them. Yeah. But it would be almost exactly be what he wants. Yeah. heresy to say that. So he says it between the lines. I'm like, well, the Greeks and Romans didn't know any better. Not that there was anything wrong with them, but more time has passed. We've learned too many things. So they can't actually come out and say that the Greeks and Romans didn't know it all. No. Well, because as you mentioned, these guys are fond of the Enlightenment. Yeah. You know, you know nobody's talking to, Anything bad about the Greeks or Romans? To slam the Greek and the Romans, you know. Yeah. But then he lays out, you know, so here's the advancements, right? He goes, look, we're going to have the regular distribution of power into distinct departments, the introduction of legislative brands and checks and balances, uh, the institution of courts composed of judges holding their offices during good behavior, uh, the representation of people in the legislature by deputies of their own election. And those are all these new discoveries. What's interesting is the idea that, uh, the judges will only hold their offices during good behavior. Uh, I, I wonder if at the time Hamilton was was thinking that what we'd end up with, at least as far as federal judges, that are basically, I mean, they're there. They're not, you're not getting rid of, you know, they're not going anywhere, you know, <laughs> so. Well, I got the impression you know, there that he might, I don't think he was thinking that far. I think, you know, those four, he just lifted those ideas wholesale out of Montesquieu. Yeah. And... That was he, he was just saying, Monas, you said these things are good. I think they are too. You know, those, those four things mm-hmm. were pretty much new innovations written about by Montesquieu. And so he's saying, of course, the Greeks and Romans couldn't have done those things because they didn't know about them because yeah. Montesquieu's the one who really laid them out. So if you like Montesquieu, you'll love our form of government. With it. It's just uh, everything you want and more. I mean, the idea I almost get from him, from him being Hamilton and writing this Federalist paper is that, like, look, it's all in a modern way of looking at things. It's like the Greek democracy, it was like a really, really cool video game <laughs> that everybody was really looking forward to. Everybody wanted to buy into it. It was going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. So everybody pre ordered it. 
and then it rushed. It came out maybe too quickly, released early, and the the alpha release was with the Greeks and Romans, and it Sir, didn't quite work out because are, it was rushed into the market. And then are you wait wait hold on? America was going to be the patch to fix everything yeah. and make it what was going to supposed to be in the first place. Are you suggesting that the Greek democracy is the uh, Atari Twenty Six Hundred ET uh, video game of democracies? I am not suggesting that. <laughs> I am suggesting it was all just one giant, massive multiplayer online game. You know what I'm talking about, right? As far as the ET for the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. I I would not I would not besmirch democracy in that fashion. Okay, all right. <laughs> Hopefully, democracy won't be end up buried in the desert in what was it, Arizona, New Mexico? In the yeah, fashion. they found that. They found them now. They went. They dug them up now, and now they're worth a lot of money. It's like anything else. You bury it long enough, you dig it up, it becomes valuable. You know. So and hey, that's what happened to democracy. I mean, it was around and it, it was going strong with the Greeks and Romans. Yeah, and then it just went away for a while. And then uh, Montesquieu and the founding fathers just dug it up. Yeah, dug and it up. And it's appreciated in value since that time. It has. It has. And, you know, let's uh, – we keep talking about Montesquieu. Let me – Tell me about Montesquieu. I looked into him a little bit as well. He's an interesting individual. Briefly, and uh, yeah. He really uh, – I had not realized the extent to which he was really a focal point of the thinking of the founding fathers. Yes. Yeah, so Charles Louis de – Sacante uh, Baron de la Brede et de Montesquieu, otherwise known as Montesquieu. I'm just gonna call him Montesquieu. Montesquieu, yeah, or M. We could go all James Bond and just call him M. Nah, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't no. shorter shorten it. Right. Monty works, Mon but Monty? I think I can right. hack Montesquieu. I'll, Montesquieu. I'll stay with Montesquieu. We'll all right. So he's really famous for the articulation of the theory of separation of powers in government. Yeah. And that backbone that he kind of crystallized has become, you know, as implemented in many different forms, many constitutions throughout the world. He also really worked to get the idea of uh, despotism into the political lexicon. Okay, when when yeah. people are talking mm -hmm. about the different types of government, and he wrote that, Spirit of the Laws. Spirit of the I mean, Laws. Yeah, that's what yes. Hamilton is. Yes. and uh, and both Hamilton and the Anna Federalist seem to be focused around is that that particular work of yes. Montesquieu's Spirit and, of the Laws. I mean, it, he did other stuff, but for he did for the purposes of the Federalist Papers and that's the, his, the, that particular debate. That's his greatest hit. Laws, that's his great hit. You know, and so he he breaks down political systems in three kinds: Republican. Monocle, uh, and, monocle, and not monocle, uh, <laughs> monarchy. If there is a monocle, form, <laughs> that sounds interesting to me. I'd like to hear more about yeah. it. Yes, everyone can only have one eye <laughs> or, or one eyeglass. You, you have right. two eyes and one monocle. <laughs> you, just, you just have one just, lens. Just one lens. You're thinking of pirate form of government, I believe. <laughs> Yeah, that was the Cyclops former government. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. uh, and despotic. And there'll be some heavy heavy editing again. <laughs> words, Anyways, words, words are hard sometimes, Carrie. And he breaks down the um, a democratic republic into two different kinds. Uh, Republican government in, in, into two kinds: democratic republic and aristocratic republics. And the the barometer between the two is how much power is given to the people and how much is reserved to a few elite. And where you have uh, a very power to the people type of uh, republic. It's it tends towards what he calls a democratic republic, 
And if there is an elite class that kind of rules, there you have your arist uh, aristocratic republics. The interest, so he makes, he classifies into those three. He talks about each one sort of having a, a principle. And for the, the republics, they have a love of virtue, is what he says. And in other words, a willingness to put the interests of the community ahead of private interests. For monarchies... Well, that's the definition of yeah. virtue, I think, in a republic is yeah. virtue is what's, what the people want. Corruption is defined conversely as what's not in the best interest. Well, I should be consistent. Best interest of the people slash what they want versus corruption of not in the best interest interest of the people and mm -hmm. not what they want. And I know sometimes the what people want and what's in their best interest can also be in conflict. But for now, let's read them consistently. Yes. For monarchies, the kind of trigger for monarchies, their principle is a love of honor, that the desire to attain greater, greater rank and greater privilege. And for uh, despotisms, it's it's a fear of the ruler. And so those are the sort of like the three. Well, their, their definition of honor really is more how we would understand the word ambition, really. I mean, yeah. Which you can understand. I mean, you know, kings uh, usually wanted to acquire more or more land for the for the king, for the glory of the king, you know, um, yeah. uh, that kind of thing. But where he really, his next major theme is a separation of powers. And here, not only does he, he crystallize that argument that you should have an executive, a legislative, and judiciary, and that they should be, the powers should be housed in different bodies to help protect one branch from infringing upon the other. So it's a very similar idea to then what's enshrined in the constitution he also then goes on to talk about what many people would call but what we would think of now as due, due process right includes mm -hmm. right to a fair trial presumption of innocence uh proportionality and the severity of the punishment to the crime you know he argued against slavery and for freedom of thought speech and assembly so all these these rights and these things that we think, wow, you know, hey, the Constitution is the founding fathers really got it right. They were not plucking these things out of out of thin air. They had they were looking back to other people who had thought about them before before themselves. Yeah, um, it's really surprising <laughs> to me the extent to you know, which a lot of the ideas uh, flowed directly from Montesquieu. Yeah. Um, the main thing, the main idea I got from looking at what Montesquieu was writing about. Mm -hmm was this conflict, this inherent conflict. And I think that's what Hamlet is trying to address here between security and efficiency of government. Okay. Because in Montesquieu's theories, it's, it seems like he was saying, look, on one hand, you want to have a big, powerful state and a big, powerful government, big, power democracy, big powerful democracy to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. So you have a big enough army, big enough land size, big enough resources that – you can't be taken over. On the other hand, though, if it's too big, the incentive towards corruption is going to be so great that you're not going to have good government. So if you're good enough, to, if you're big enough to protect yourself, your government, your government's going to be corrupt as hell. But if you have a pure government where everybody is governing in the best interest of everybody, uh, like a especially like a direct democracy, like in Greece, it's going to be so small that you're, you're just going to be subject to being taken over. And you won't be able to defend yourself. Mm -hmm. um, it seemed like that was what was at the core of Montesquieu's thinking. And Hamilton is trying to have his cake and eat it too by saying, hey, we can have a big government that's big enough to protect us. But through these checks and balances and um, you know, through the federalism that we're espousing, we're also going to have enough power uh, still at the local level that – you know, we're not going to be a, a, a government that's going to be insensitive to the needs of the people at the lower levels. But see, here's the thing that I think Hamilton was 
was interesting with Hamilton's argument was he was saying not you know hey Montesquieu's wrong in the idea that everything's got to be a small state, but to the extent what was that? as far as what he, Hamilton was saying was it, Hamilton basically argues in his paper to the extent that Montesquieu is suggesting that you have to have a small state in order for Republican government to work well. He was wrong. But to the points that I want to make, it, to the extent that Montesquieu is right about things, he's agreeing with me. You know what I mean? So he, he kind of – I don't know if I'd go as far as that. I, I don't think that Hamilton would, would – I don't think he would want to go out and say Montesquieu was actually wrong. I think he would – maybe how he would spit it would say Montesquieu was maybe a little bit too pessimistic and didn't well, have enough – didn't have as much faith as he needed to and how good his innovations really were. I just think that yeah. it seems to me that Montesquieu carried such intellectual weight to the founding fathers on both sides yeah. that he would be very reluctant to come out and say that Montesquieu was wrong any more than he'd be willing to come out and say Greece and uh, Rome was was wrong in a particular instance. The, yeah. They, but they're just so revered. The interesting thing One about – One thing I wanted to say yeah. too about Montesquieu is – we're not going to dive too deep into Montesquieu this week because this is sort of a teaser sneak peek at the uh, the glories of Montesquieu because okay. he is really the, the centerpiece of Federalist Number 10. I mean he's really much more explicitly addressed yeah. there, and so I think we'll probably have an even deeper dive there in Episode 10. Yeah. But – you know, I was looking at. I looked at some some passages and some context uh, from the spirit of laws and some of the things that Montesquieu was saying, and I thought it was really interesting. Uh, I normally don't like to explicitly reference passages from you know, a paper or another book, but I thought this one was interesting. I'll just read it off real quickly. Yeah, go ahead. It says, and this is from Montesquieu in the Spirit of the Laws. It is natural to a republic to have only a small territory; otherwise, it can't long subsist. It cannot long subsist. In a large republic, there are men of large fortunes and consequently less moderation. There are trusts too great to be placed in any single subject. He has interests of his own. He soon begins to think that he may be happy, great and glorious by oppressing his fellow citizens, that he may raise himself to grandeur on the ruins of his country. In a large republic, the public good is sacrificed to a thousand views. It's subordinate to exceptions and depends on accidents. In a small one, the interests of the republic is easier perceived, better understood, and more within the reach of every, every citizen. Abuses are of less extent and, of course, are less protected. So, in a nutshell, what Montesquieu is saying there, and wow, really interesting thing for him to say. He says, look, you got a really rich and powerful country, a large, large democracy, where that uh, democracy has a lot of... Large wealth and influence, yeah. then you're going to have individuals who have a large incentive to gain power in those countries to further enrich themselves by favoring their own interests, their own business interests, their own financial mm -hmm. interests at the cost of everybody else. And isn't that where um, the Anifelists are, are keying off? That? Isn't that where the Anifelists, though, are keying off saying Montesquieu's arguing – that you have to have small states in order for a Republican government to work well? Well, the reason they say that is, so take, the, take, take a country the size of the modern United States. It's a large, powerful country, sole yeah. superpower in the world. So you can imagine if you were a, for example, a wealthy businessman 
if you were to take, you know, the presidency, you could probably confer a lot of business, a lot of uh, benefits to your own personal business uh, or your own fi personal financial interests. By contrast, so, you know, no matter how much you spent on becoming president or no matter how much resources, time and energy, yeah. um, the benefits of having control of a country that large and powerful as far as how much you could help yourself would be huge, huge. Huge. Compare that, for example, to if you were to if if you were a country that that was basically had almost nothing going for it, a country that was like really tiny, didn't really make anything worthwhile. Say you're like your country is Rhode Island. Rhode Island. I mean, if you're like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos, who's the head of Amazon, mm -hmm. I mean, is it even worth your while to be in charge of? I mean, would you rather be in charge of? Would you rather be the head of Amazon.com or the head of Rhode Island? I mean, well, I don't. I mean, which are, is? Are you talking Colonial Rhode Island or whatever Rhode Island? <laughs> whatever Rhode Island. I mean, you probably it's probably uh, you probably more powerful and uh, could have a lot more access to resources than being the head of a uh, you know Microsoft, being the head of uh, Amazon than yeah. you would being. The absolute dictator of Rhode Island. I mean, yeah. what are you going to do? Corner the market on coffee syrup? You know, uh, I don't even hey, know. Rhode Island I'm sure they make something. Out. I don't know, but I'm just saying yeah. that was that was the point of Montesquieu. Is if you really don't have anything worth being corrupt over, you know, if you're a tiny little city state, yeah, then there's there's so little incentive to for someone to govern you in a corrupt way. You're more secure with your better internally. Because you're mm -hmm. more likely to be ruled by people who don't have alternative motivations besides just wanting to govern your society well. Yes. But the more that's at stake, whether by wealth, power, whatever, you know, absolute power, absolute wealth corrupts absolutely. So your incentive uh, is for greater corruption. But conversely, you know, if you're Rhode Island, you might be as pure as the pure as the winter snow. There's the new fallen snow. Yeah. As far as how well you govern yourself, but I mean, who can't take you over? I mean, you have just, you just have nothing. You're, you know, anybody mm -hmm. could just, uh, you know, you get blown over by a summer breeze <laughs> because you have no, no power at all. You're, you know, powerless. Yeah. And, and at, you know, the city states in Greece learned that before too. They had direct mm -hmm. democracy. They had very pure democratic rule. But whenever they were not confederated and joining their strength individually they were easy to pick off because any one city standing alone is easy to meet so that was really the conundrum that at the core of this entire paper is can we can we be can we be big a large, and get a large the bigness without corrupt without incentivizing yeah. and bad rule yeah and well i mean i'm sure the people who are listening to this today would have different opinions about that we've certainly have well, the, I mean, the size part down. I understand. I understand. But you know, that was that was the concern at the time, and and arguably it could be a concern now. Turning back though to the to the paper, I, I think you you summarized. Yeah, we can touch on Montague again next week. He's not yeah. going. I mean, next episode, he's not going away. I would say this though. Here's the thing. Right here is a perfect example as to part of the reason why I first approached you about doing this is your interest in Montague. No. 
my interest, the interest in learning. He's a hard more, guy to resist. Yes. Well, I wanted to to understand the papers more. And here I'm reading number nine, and I'm like, who's Montesquieu? What's going on with this guy Montesquieu? I mean, I guess I'd heard his name here or there in the past, but never really thought much about him or what he had said or his influence on my life vis-a-vis the founding fathers is, and the Constitution. Apparently, has a lot more than we thought. Yeah. Um, he seems to be at the core of a lot of uh, what was put into the Constitution, Constitution. as far as its internal yeah. safeguards. Yeah. This is just a good example of and, – and I'm looking forward to looking into them more and getting a better understanding of it. Um, yeah, and we're going to be hitting them harder I think in, in episode 10 because I, I feel like one of the reasons that Federal's paper number 10 mm-hmm. is uh, so much you know attention as far as constitutional scholars go and historians go is that it really even more fully addresses some of the core problems at the heart of democratic government and republican government. I will say uh, one other thing about Montesquieu, though, before because I understand we don't want to get too too far off in the beaten path uh, uh, down that road. Is that one other part about his um, his main work there? He gets into this political sociology, right? And he kind of tries to to well, that was sort of his calling card. Yeah, but he he, he tries to uh, argue about how geography and climate can interact with particular cultures to produce a spirit of the people. And then the spirit in turn uh, helps guide them towards the different types of political and social institutions. Hey, I'm okay with that. John Jay yeah. thinks we're united by rivers and hams. I, so <laughs> that flows right yeah. into that idea. Well, you know, I mean, the, uh, that, we're, we're okay. We're, this is not the first time we've heard about that idea of the land makes the people. I, I think though that, I, you know, in Montesquieu's situation, and I'm going to be when I go to look and read a little bit more before we get into episode ten about him. To me, this sounds a bit uh, ethnocentric when you're going through sociology and you're wherever starting place that you're at is the right way, and you start looking about um, it. You know, there used to be this idea that that uh, a people and a culture will eventually mature and evolve into, you know, Western Europe, right? That that all peoples and all cultures around the world are just slowly on the progress of their evolution and turning into the cultures of Western Europe. And and the, the people... But to play devil's advocate you know, in a lot of ways to have. Well, you know, I mean, you look at the militaries all over the world, for example, and you don't have, you know, when the... I remember an article one time talking about when the Chinese took back Hong Kong, they didn't march in in military outfits that were those of Han China. They marched in in military, Western military uniforms. And, yeah. the, you know, the flow of history does seem to be towards many Western ideas. Just to prove, you know, just to just to shake it up a little bit and, and counter I, that. I don't. I mean, we're, you know, do you see the opposite. And I, I, I don't. Do, I, I, is that I, a good thing? I don't think that the flow of all peoples is to Western European ideals. Um, some of the, the oldest civilizations on the planet still are not in line with Western civilization. They've gone other routes and, and they don't necessarily automatically evolve to that. I think Mr. Churchill you know, and Mr. Churchill and I would disagree with you. I, I'm, I'm sure that was one of his conclusions of the history of English speaking peoples is that, uh, yeah, 
the Western world, or for him, the English-speaking world, yeah. has sort of lit the torch for civilization. And civilization didn't start in Western Europe. Well, I'm not going to you know, you know. say that it did, but I'm just saying as far as where the world seems to be moving. But I, don't, I didn't so, need to get it off track there. Yeah. But uh, I wish my, I had, my bigger defense I wish of mine when I raised for John Jay – uh, which is that, you know, to some extent, they were both men of their times. And yeah. it's very difficult for one person to be all things to all people. You know, um, Montesquieu, we regard most highly because some of his ideas on government and to the extent we disagree with some of his ideas now. I mean, I think that's inevitable. Uh, you know, I, 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 I don't hear Montesquieu's name being raised often in defense of intolerance, for example, or you know, narrow-mindedness. I just think that he had his focus on political theory and development. He did. Um, but I think, well, I mean, we'll see how it plays out. I'll, I'll have to read and try to study a bit before um, the next episode to see how far down the path of uh, cultural uh, ethnocentric views uh, he went. Um my guess is that he probably went. I am going to give you a heads up that we're going to do a pop quiz on Moscow in episode nine. Okay. Episode 10. Episode 10. All right. You got to be ready for that. You got to be ready. Pop quiz. I'll see how much I can, I can, I can prep for that. Um, the interesting thing here though, is, is, is getting, going back to the paper in, in number nine, you know, Hamilton then keys off with this idea that he discusses this. Uh, it seems like the Anafellus have raised a distinction between confederacy and consolidation of the states. Am I am I reading that right? You are reading that right, okay. although he sort of it's. I don't feel like he's very precise in laying out the logic of how they're separate. I mean, his point is that we're not going to be we you know, federals aren't going to be over consolidating or over centralizing mm-hmm. the government of the constitution, and he throws some words in there to try to say we're not, but. I feel like it's more of a semantics exercise. That's just me. I feel like uh, the ideas are okay, but I don't think that, I don't view the words Confederacy versus Confederate Republic the same magic words for me. Well, it seemed to me like he was suggesting that the Anafellers were trying to make a distinction between a Confederacy and a consolidation, and mm-hmm. and what he was saying is, you know, look, there's not a real difference. You know, it's just it's just how much we're on the in the scale between kind of like what Montesquieu was saying between democratic uh, republic and uh, an aristocratic republic, like where you put the needle in that. Yeah. And, and the we're more, not, you know, he's trying to say we're not, we, I guess he's trying to say a consolidate. It's not a consolidation insofar as we're not just joining all the states together to one, become one state. One we're state, going to yeah. our individuality. But it, I think it, the thing that's hurting him in his paper, and I understand why it's hurting him, is that like he's trying to, there's words that don't really exist in the same form then that we would use now that he couldn't use then. He got stuck using the term confederacy because confederacies are the main things that existed then. It was the closest thing to federalism. Okay. Federalism wasn't really a thing before the federalists. I mean, like, <laughs> you were to go and look at, like, federalist. You know, the United States is a federalist republic, you know, and a federalist republic infers a stronger it, – it, it suggests a stronger degree of connection um, and unified policy under a central centralized go- centralized government than does a confederacy, which you know confederacies are much less. I mean that the, the confederacy under the Articles of Confederacy is a great example of. It was for a limited purpose, primarily for an emergency need, 
and the emphasis was more on what powers are kept separate to the individual states than what is given you know, to the central government. Whereas a federal republic focuses on what's central and you know, the states only have, you know, the states have less powers by comparison. But again, before, before the United States, mostly it was confederacies. There, were, there weren't really federalist republics. Um, I mean, I think we've seen the closest thing that existed prior to the United States that they tried to argue by analogy based on is the, the seven different sub-states of the Netherlands. But again, that's, it's really a hard comparison because the Netherlands are so much smaller and they had different historical pressures that moved them in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, the, the word, I think he was trying to struggle because he was limited in the words he could use. Yeah. I, I, I just, uh, I think he was suggesting that the antifeathers were making uh, were, were um, <sighs> splitting hairs almost, you know, between the two. And that at the end of the day, you know, you have this Confederate Republic that's an assemblage of societies, um, yeah. and which is really just two or more states being put into to one. Um, yeah, you said we could do it know. a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that's how you organize their relationships that that determines, you know, where you fall on that scale between a Confederacy and a total just consolidation but you know and and he talks about hey look the proposed constitution is gonna is not gonna abolish the state governments you know and that you know and and they're gonna be part of a whole but they're still gonna remain separate um and so i think he was he was sort of addressing what he viewed was maybe a a bad argument by the NFS. One, two punch. You know, the NFS yeah. could be trying to argue of, look, the all of the states together, mm-hmm. as Montesquieu said, are too big to be governed in a really democratic manner. So, of course, in the natural course of things, if we adopt this constitution, what's going to happen is to all the pressure is going to be to make us just one big consolidated com- country. And if that happens, all of the individual rights and individual you know cultures of the different states are going to all just be absorbed into the one state and you're not going to have any say or any power or any influence on this overpowerful federal government but uh i think we could also briefly discuss one of the things we haven't really mentioned too far too much yet is how greek democracy was different than democracy was going to be in the, in the republic of you know on the constitution Democracy in its original form with the, the city-state of, of Athens was direct democracy. Mm-hmm. Everybody who was a citizen, you know, would vote on it on every, you know, everybody could be a member of the council. You all went down, you all voted. It'd be like if everybody in America voted on every single law individually instead of voting for representatives who make decisions on, on our behalf. Yeah. And, you can see if you're stuck with that form of democracy where literally everybody has to vote on everything, that the bigger you are and the more powerful you are and the more complex the issues you're considering, the harder it is to govern effectively because people have jobs, people are busy, so it's hard for them to read every bill uh, that comes up in front of the national legislature. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that that was... 
you know, one of those innovations that Monsky mentioned, the representative voting, you know, makes a big difference. I, I thought it was interesting when I was looking at some of the information on uh, um, the origins of democracy in Greece. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were talking about how Sparta practiced a, for a while, practiced an interesting form of democracy where they elected people and voted on things based on judging uh, how loud the crowd shouted for different things. I mean, literally, it would be sort of like a showtime at the Apollo type of thing. Yeah, yeah. They would, like, put their hand up behind their candidate or there would be a host who put a hand up behind a candidate yeah. or a law, and everybody would shout and applaud, and whichever one got the uh, – the, the loudest cheers would win. Well, don't we, do uh, I we think s- that some of the Athenians thought this was a bit childish and silly, but the Spartans defended it by saying, well, say what you will. Um, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to rig that vote. It's hard yeah. to, you can't stuff that ballot box. You can't uh, tamper yeah. with those ballots. Uh, whoever's loudest is loudest. Um, we still have that like, sometimes in the house, though. Don't yeah, we do Indians that? voted with with stones, apparently, and I guess there was a lot of uh, voting fraud at the time, where people would chuck in some extra stones oh, uh, yeah. in behind backstage or whatnot, or in the counting area, or take stones out. Huh. So, but I thought that was interesting. Uh, the reality TV style voting done by Sparta. Well, you know, don't we still do that sometimes in the house, where they just do a voice vote on things? Now, well, yeah. the eyes we, have it, nays have yeah. it. Yeah, maybe, so, maybe we need to. Maybe that's uh, we're explicitly addressing some of the concerns that uh, Sparta raised. Yeah, maybe, we should, maybe that's the way to do it. Is uh, we're having our our uh, national elections, we should just all shout into microphones. <laughs> and whoever's loudest should I, win. I think there's probably enough shouting going on today <laughs> that's that's true that's true you know so um shipping now, pays a little for the romans though yeah. it's, it's interesting that they're raised so much as an example of uh, you know uh, earlier dem- democracy or republic i think republic is usually used more as a label for rome because they just it just seems that they didn't have a functioning democracy or even republicans for as long because uh for a good chunk of you know, Roman history that, you know, people know about at least, they, you know, were, there was various levels of dictatorship, you know, emperors, obviously. Yeah. But even pre-emperors, you know, it was, the, you know, the big thing they tried was alternating consuls where, you know, you'd have two people elected and they would alternate and have, you know, great power for one year and then the other person would, mm-hmm. they would alternate back and forth. Um, but, uh, there just seemed to be a lot of corruption in the Roman way of uh, running the republic. The republics, uh, you know, it's relatively really small portion of people were even eligible to vote, and I guess there was a lot of uh, you had to things be a citizen, that right? tended, tended to favor the wealthy and the powerful at the cost of everybody else. Well, that was the thing. You, had to, be, you had to be. You a can ci- see how it's easy to say that there's a lot of innovation since then mm-hmm. because there were some problems uh, with the primitive forms of democracy. Well, you know, one of the things that was interesting um, that we, yeah, I think you, you mentioned in the summary, but we haven't actually touched on yet in any real discussion. I wanted to get your thought on it was this idea that Hamilton talked about, look, you know, when you're in a republic and all the states are together, if there's a problem in one area, 
the other states can move in and essentially fix it. Uh, so if there's a rebellion in one spot, fix is a nice way to describe it. Uh, and and and, and beat it like down. Crushing it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a, yeah, yeah. You know, um, you know, if there's a rebellion, like Shay's rebellion or something, crop up again, the you know the federal government can come in and just put it down. Um, but then he yeah. also seems to suggest that if hey, if this whole federal government thing doesn't work out and the whole thing blows up, you know, the states still remain and just can everyone can just go back to being independent states. Um, and that's an interesting uh, sort of one to, you know. It's speak. interesting to think about in the, in the context you know, of civil war, certainly. Yeah, because um, because uh, you, you know, it's he seems he Gives seems like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Sides. Huh? I'm sorry. Gives ammunition to both sides in their arguments about what was the right thing that they were allowed to do legally. Yeah, because it you know on one hand it says you can go and suppress rebellions, and that's how Lincoln characterized. The secession of the southern states is rebelling against the federal government. Yeah. On the other hand, you know it says if you know if you don't like how things are going, you can withdraw, mm-hmm. and that seems to support the southern argument that you know we no longer feel like our interests are being met, so we're going to leave. We're taking our ball and going home. So <laughs> it, it you know I don't on the face of it, it doesn't seem to be logically consistent. The only thing I can think of is. The context you mentioned, you know, is that the Shays Rebellion, the mm-hmm. Whiskey Rebellion that happened later in the Constitution, yeah. when the rebellion is not by the states as states, no, and just, it's just overwhelmed the ability of the local state government to deal with, yes, then the other non-rebellion prone states can send their forces in who aren't embroiled in the in the riots and put it down. Yes, you know, maybe that is what he was thinking is. That it's not that the states are rising up against the federal government. It's that there are so many, you know, the area in rebellion in a particular state is so great that on their own they can't take care of it. The other states have to go in and help. Yes, I, I think that's probably probably more accurate. Um, but and the conclusion of that then is Ham is that if you take that view, is Hamlin saying that the southern states were right to secede? Because they were rising up as states, and as states, then do they have the right to withdraw? No, but no. Why? Well, if you say that, no, I think we I've, haven't touched, we haven't done anything yet to undermine the ability of states to withdraw. We've just said that you can you can crush rebellions if they're not the states' rebellion as states, but just as it just doesn't. No, it doesn't mean that the the southern states are right. It just means that Hamilton didn't necessarily address that topic in this paper, at least. You know, um, he's talking. How else do you interpret then that they the states have right to leave? I think what he's suggesting is 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 that look, we're all going to go in on this together, and if it really goes to hell, you'll you you know Pennsylvania will still be Pennsylvania. It'll be okay, guys. Okay, it's. I don't think he's suggesting that the states necessarily even have a right to withdraw. I think he's saying that, like, if if for some reason it just blows up, okay, like whatever we're doing as at the federal level is not going to destroy, you know, Pennsylvania, and New York. You guys are still going to exist when this if this were to all be said and done and and no longer exist, uh, the individual states will will carry on. Um, and, and and continue to continue to be there, um, sort of. If the sun and the solar system dies away, fades away, the planets will still be there. 
is is to use so your his argument magic. is that you know not n- not that collapses in the same way that he was prophesying that the Articles of Confederation were going to collapse. Yeah, that the states would still exist. You still exist as be sovereign entities. Yeah, and they can it's America 3.0. They can continue on. And in fact, I think the thing is, is you know Hamilton is suggesting here maybe in this paper that they've reached back and used the democratic theories and, and political science has evolved up to this point. I think he figured it was going to continue to evolve and that at some time in the future, people would look at the constitution in this much the same way that they're looking at Montesquieu, you know, and, and uh, as, as a reference point and a point, uh, a leaping off point and, and to, to form their ideas and their ideals. And so I don't think he thought that uh, while he, I, you know, I think, I don't know. I'm trying a hard time trying to put together what I wanted to say. So here's another. Yeah, edit, I mean, your argument you makes know, sense. What you're saying, you know, I was just looking at the, the actual language you know, that we're referring to, and it does talk about it, the Confederacy is dissolved. You know, so that doesn't see, that tends to suggest more that, yeah, I could see that point that I could see that point of view. Yeah. If, the, if this government we're trying to create doesn't work out and it all falls apart, then all the individual states will exist and can try again. Although it will be interesting, you know, it's one thing to for them to have made it, uh, made the Constitution, and crafted everything from scratch with 13 colonies. I couldn't imagine how difficult it would be to repeat a similar feat with 50 states now. I don't know that you could. I mean, I don't know how that would be possible, but, uh, you know, and here I'm the guy, the last episode was talking about trying to find ways and the hard makes it great, but you know, <laughs> you know, um, well, I'm going to stick with my, my theory from the opposition from the prior episode of it. Easier said than done. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we can, I think we can really segue into our closing here. Okay. Uh, I think, and the last few episodes we've been doing the strengths and weaknesses you buy it, they buy it. I think. We can simplify for this one. This tends to suggest an easier uh, tool for analysis. And for me, that is, can you have your cake and eat it too? And that's Mm -hmm. what this is all about is uh, Hamlin is trying to convince the readers that you can have all the big advantages of being a large uh, country with a lot of power in the federal, strong federal government to act quickly to solve problems and defend the country. But at the same time, you will not have problems with, you won't have the problems that Montesquieu predicted of the central government having so much power that it becomes a strong temptation for corrupt people to come in, take over, and govern against the interests of the people. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess my thinking is, what do you think about that? Do you think that uh, that's he, he's persuasive to you, and was he persuasive to them? We'll just make it a two-prong test instead of the four we usually do. Yeah. Just, I guess, talk about the can you have your cake and, and eat it too. Yeah. And I, I think – It's not quite working out. Yeah. And I think he's he makes those arguments, but he does it in a way of saying, look, guys – We'll have this strong federal government, but we'll, you know it just really comes down to where we set the dial on power to the federal government, or still retaining you know individual states' uh, identities, and in a way and that and that's that's how he's he has that sort of argument of, can you have your cake and eat it too? Now the questions you asked me were, 
were did it were the people at the time buying it? I mean, I guess so. I you know I don't I don't know how many of the yeah, average you, have, you know I, you only have yeah. to break it down to the people at the time. Just yeah, yeah we just talk about the idea generally. Can you have your cake and eat it? Can you have all the advantages, the big and the small, all wrapped up into one nice package? I'm gonna say I don't know. Because I, I would have said yes, but with the with when you my, said yes ten years ago, do you say yes now? I might have been more likely to say yes ten years ago than I am now. All right, <laughs> I'll leave it that's at that. Fair. Okay, that's a fair point. You know, um, um, I'm thinking that you can have your cake, but you can't eat it too unless you're always baking more cake. Yeah, I mean, uh, and that's a paraphrasing of I think it was Thomas Jefferson when he said the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. You know, yeah. it's like. Uh, I think what I think what Hamilton is trying to say here is plausible, but it's not guaranteed. Yeah. Um, these different innovations, the checks and balances of the judges, the representative mm-hmm. government, the division of power in the departments, they are ways to make it less likely that government will be corrupted. Uh, because you're going to have some institutions to stand in the way of that and make it less yeah. likely to happen. But those institutions themselves are open to corruption. Um, they, well, they're better than nothing. They but are. They're yeah. not a guarantee. I think in democracy, as in life, nothing is guaranteed. You know, not, you, it takes constant effort. And I read Montesquieu as being a pessimist and feeling like if a bad outcome can happen, it will. Again, not to dive too deep into Montesquieu, but it's about like one of the other overriding messages he had was that ultimately the system is going to determine the, – the system and the rules and, and the overriding trends of history are going to show what happens in a particular instance – are going to cause events – and not individual outliers. You know, his idea always seemed to be that he didn't care as much about what individual people did as if something bad happened, it was because it was bound to happen because the system was bad. Mm-hmm. If something good happened, it was bound to happen because it was good. Um, so I think Montesquieu would say that, I think Montesquieu's conclusions would be that, yeah, they might slow the process of corruption, but it wouldn't eliminate it. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't necessarily agree with Montesquieu. I think that, um, but I do think that even with those institutions that are enshrined in the Constitution and that Hamilton had so much faith in, uh, institutions like anything is subject to entropy. And, you know, things, you know, just tending to, you know, fall back into the state of nature. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that uh, the mitigation is the prescription of Thomas Jefferson, which is that, you know, people have to be on the ball and sort of reinvigorate and and, uh, and reaffirm their the importance of their values mm-hmm. and the institutions for it to work. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you just put it on autopilot, then you're going to end up with the Montague result, which is that things are just going to get worse and eventually fall apart. Yeah. So I do think it's possible... But I don't think that – I do think it's possible that these – I think these innovations are better than nothing. But I don't think the Anti-Federalists were crazy to think that they might not be enough. No. No, I don't think so. I don't – yeah. Um, what's interesting, you know, something else that struck me here is listening to you talk is I, I don't know that Hamilton was necessarily 
on board with everything in the Constitution the way it was written. I mean, keep in mind. Oh, no. No, you know, he was not. You know, he was definitely not. And, I mean, you know, the Virginia plan ended up getting adopted and, and, you know, they took a more democratic approach. I think he wanted more of a, you know, I think he wanted the Senate, the upper chamber, to be uh, much more elite. Oh yeah, and we not, can do an entire episode on you know Hamilton's thoughts, but I think you're you're it's a fair, you know, it's you're accurate to say that <laughs> Hamilton generally wanted more centralization wherever he can get it. Yeah, and the Constitution at the time was where you could get it. You know, I know he's arguing for it here in the Federalist Papers, but you keep in mind that the three authors themselves on the Federalist Papers had some different viewpoints on the virtues of the Constitution as it was written. Is, is I guess, and that's why it'll know, be interesting next episode know, when we get into uh, you know Madison we'll transition yeah. away from Hamilton into Madison is because Madison had a, a different view. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a little bit more moderate. He was not as committed to centralization as yeah. Hamilton was. So, but before we wrapped up completely, I just wanted to mention uh, to any of our listeners that uh, I've been working this week on our, and hopefully it'll be done by the time the, the uh, episode's released. I've been working on our, our Facebook page uh, for the Paperless Federalist. So if you're on Facebook, if you just put in the Paperless Federalist, and uh, hopefully by the time this episode is released, you should be able to go to that page. And if you have any comments, thoughts, suggestions on an episode, um, I'm, you're posting each episode on Facebook. You put them beneath each episode. And also, if you want to get in touch with either of us for any questions you might have, uh, you'd like to have addressed in a future episode, especially if it's one specific to one of our papers, then uh, definitely we'd welcome that. No, but that's good to know that, that we're, well, we're, we're getting up on Facebook. And um, and, and, and as always, don't forget to check us out on Stitcher, iTunes, uh, Podbean, uh, and all the other places you can get podcasts. And uh, don't forget to like uh, and uh, subscribe. Please rate us as well on iTunes. And so we get more people uh, rating us. Uh, uh, it'll just help, help the podcast grow and get more listeners and, and get it out there. Uh, we appreciate anybody who's who takes time to do that. Other than that, Carrie, I think uh, we're probably at the probably reaching at the end here. So, as always, thanks yeah. for thanks for sharing your thoughts. Okay, and uh, we'll see, you see in episode ten. See you in episode ten, everybody. Bye.